So our, our sermon text for today is Psalm 94. We won't have a lot of sermon slides today, and you might have also noticed uh, no, no papery bulletin was placed into your hands today. The internet is a remarkable thing, but when the internet is not working, not much is working. That includes being able to print things and, and make sermon slides and, and many other things, right? Especially with the move away from computing that's done on a machine to cloud-based computing, if you understand that. At any rate, Christians worshipped before we had anything put up uh, on there, before we had the ability to print things in mass quantities, and we will continue to worship today. So if you want to uh, get a finger in Psalm 94, we'll get there in just a minute. So talked with the children, as you heard uh, Rod read earlier from Hebrews chapter 12, discipline is going to be one of the themes of our text for today. One of the things we do hear a lot about uh, these days is discipleship. That's rightly an important emphasis in the church. And in particular, I think we're rediscovering that there's a need for ongoing discipleship of Christians beyond just getting together somewhat regularly on Sunday mornings uh, for worship. Very important, but we're also realizing we need to dig into God's word. We need to learn how to follow him in obedience. At least that's the general picture. Now in English, uh, discipleship and discipline, that's almost the same word, right? Very, very similar. Even if we understand them as having somewhat different applications. In the New Testament, however... We have at least two different Greek words used. What we normally call discipleship tends to refer to studying or training under a teacher in regards to a specific topic or trade. So we might translate it student or apprentice. So disciple, that's student-teacher language, primarily. Discipline, on the other hand, and this is what we heard read from that passage in Hebrews, It has primarily to do with children growing up into mature adults. And the Greek word used there is from the same root, uh, having to do with children. In other words, that's child-parent language rather than student-teacher. Now, both of these are pictures of our ongoing walk of faith with Jesus, right? We are to be disciples of Christ in the sense that Jesus is our teacher. But we are to grow through discipline Because we worship God as our Heavenly Father and we are his children. So why do I bring all of this stuff up in a message on the Old Testament on Psalm 94? Well, as I said, one of the important themes in Psalm 94 is the Lord's discipline. In fact, this is part of a chain of verses that kind of flows throughout Scripture. And they all say the same thing on this important topic. Don't despise the Lord's discipline. It's actually a sign of his blessing and love. We won't be able to get to all of these uh, passages today. We heard one of them read, and we'll be looking at Psalm 94. But the total number of them are Job 5, verse 17. Today's passage, Psalm 94, particularly verse 12. Proverbs 3.11, Hebrews 12, uh, 5 to 11 primarily. And Revelation 3.19. You can write those down if you wish to look at them later. You might want to do that. They do form quite a remarkable little string of verses on this topic. So our psalm today, as we're going to hear in just a moment, it reminds us that God is our rock, particularly in the context of challenging times. For one of the important things, and this is where the discipline of the Lord comes in, 
this psalm reminds us that we can get beyond just surviving in these difficult times and learn from them. I was, I was telling the kids, and actually, hopefully, thrive even in the midst of, of these. Actually grow through them. So I'd invite you to stand as we have typically done for our sermon reading or sermon passage reading. Psalm 94. It's right next to psalms that are maybe a little bit more well-known than that, and we'll be reading one of those next week. But Psalm 94. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord. They afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people. Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought, my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold. And my God, the rock of my refuge, he will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. This is God's word. You may have a seat. Up until now, we've looked primarily at psalms that have been designated Psalms of David by their superscriptions. This one, however, doesn't have any superscription, nothing at all, no author, no, no context, it's anonymous. It talks about many of the same general themes as David's psalms, especially uh, trusting in God in spite of enemies that want to do you harm. But in many of David's psalms, it's personal, right? He's primarily talking about himself and how his enemies are threatening him. And we think of those times he was on the run from Saul. We think of later in his life when his own son Absalom led a revolt against him. His psalms tend to be very personal. However, the object of the enemy's hatred and ill treatment in this particular psalm, it has more to do with God's people as a whole. This writer is looking out at what's going on in the land, in the world, and, and seeing God's people treated badly by enemies. And we don't know any context exactly, but somewhere in the background, there seems to be this reality that God's people are being treated badly by oppressors. Perhaps we might think of foreign oppressors. Perhaps we might think of those times in Israel's history when wicked rulers from within rose up 
and sought to lead God's people away from worshiping him and persecuted those who still wanted to be faithful. In any case, this psalm takes the problem of trusting in God in light of enemies to a wider scope than we've seen in some of David's psalms so far in this series. It's no longer just about one person suffering in some way. It's about this problem on a larger scale. Early on in this psalm, we get, it's a normal constant refrain in the psalms, How long, O Lord? Many of the psalms have this. It's a regular refrain because the psalms are are real-life writings expressing the raw depth of life and the human situation they're not just pious platitudes whether it's king david or other named writers or or unknown writers they're the work of real people going through real struggles with doubt betrayal anxiety and even worse all the things that everybody still struggles with today And so this psalmist cries out, How long, O Lord? How long are these wicked people going to get away with this? Oppressing the righteous. How long will they get away from harming and even killing uh, the, the widows and the orphans? The vulnerable. Even worse, how long will, not just they get away with it, but how long are they going to be allowed to go on rejoicing in their wickedness and mocking the people that actually want to live righteously? How long? And we know this, don't we? We know this in our world. Every time you, you know, you don't say go on the internet anymore because we're always on the internet pretty much all the time. It lives in our pocket. But you turn, you, you flip open your phone, you go on to social media, you turn on the TV, you do whatever you do, and we're bombarded with these. How long are we going to have to turn on the news and see that there was another mass shooting today in some part of the world? How long are we going to see the, the Christian faith mocked in popular media? How long are we going to see behaviors that were once considered completely beyond the pale now being celebrated as good and normal and healthy? While this psalm doesn't provide easy answers, it it does provide answers, at least. Verses 8 to 11 provide a powerful response to these questions. Understand this, the writer says, speaking on behalf of the Lord. God does see. God does hear. None of this is happening off in some dark alley that's beyond God's ability to see. Where, where, you know, if we said, hey, look at this, the Lord, he'd be like, what? I didn't know about that. How'd that happen? No, that's not. That's not the case. And moreover, it's not the first time this sort of thing has happened. Let's provide some context for these verses from elsewhere in Scripture. We all know the story of the Exodus, right? Or hopefully we do anyhow. But just a little refresher. You remember, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. They'd been there for hundreds of years already. Suffering under Pharaoh and his building programs. If you've seen the Ten Commandments or the Prince of Egypt, you know this story, right? And then Moses uh, is raised, though he's Hebrew, he's raised in the courts of Pharaoh by Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, And then he grows up and, and there's this great hope that he's going to be the deliverer of his people. And he tries, but it gets off to a bad start. And he kills a man, and he has to run for his life. And he lives out in the desert with sheep for 40 years. And during those years, things in Egypt, they get worse for God's people. Because a new pharaoh comes to power who's even meaner than the old one. And then at the end of Exodus chapter 2, which is kind of summed all this up, we read these words. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. 
Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. For me, understanding scripture for what it is as, as this grand story, it really helps. Right? We can see that what the psalmist is talking about in his day was not some new thing that had never happened before. This had happened in the past to God's people, and God had delivered them. As much as it might not seem fair to us, sometimes God works this out, though, in ways that take a very long time. Think about the Exodus. The Israelites were enslaved in Egypt for something like 400 years. That's a long time. That's many generations of people who came and went longing for God's deliverance from their slavery, yet without seeing it. So I don't have good and easy answers to this other than to point out that time and time again, God does deliver his people and continues to do so. He delivered them from from slavery in Egypt. He delivered them in the time of the judges from oppressors. He delivered them from their exile in Babylon eventually. All these mighty empires came and went and God's people still were not extinguished and still have not been extinguished. And we have God's promise that eventually this won't just be a, a pattern or a progression that seems to keep happening, but that it will be a final victory eventually someday. But that still doesn't answer the question of why God sees and hears and knows, but doesn't always act, or at least why, he, why does he take so long? And furthermore, it doesn't always give us a model for how we're to operate in the meantime. Even if we can say, okay, Lord, it's fine if you're not going to bring deliverance now or even in my lifetime, but then what, what am I supposed to do? It's not an easy answer again, but it has to do with where we started, with discipline. And it's that part of discipleship that, that we don't seem to like very much. I think we're mostly fine with that learning stuff aspect, getting more information, that's, that's good. It's the going through the hard stuff side of things we prefer to avoid unless we really, really have to. But this passage and Hebrews 12 and those others more or less say the same thing. Discipline is a blessing from God. It's not a sign that God has abandoned us, quite the opposite. It's a sign that that he wants the best for us and is trying to teach us things while we live here. Now that would be reasonably easy to just give a hearty amen if all that discipline consisted of was relatively easy stuff. Anybody here ever been through like kind of corporate training for some sort of a program where they they sit you down at work and you watch some kind of videos uh, you know, either online or, or once upon a time they're probably on VHS tapes and somebody gives this little talk and then you have to do some kind of brain dead exam at the end where anybody with a pulse probably gets all the answers right. You check the boxes and at the end they write you up a dorky looking little certificate that says, okay, that's not what the Lord's discipline typically is like though, right? The only pain in that model usually is the boredom that you have to suffer through because this should be basically common sense. But in both of these passages that we're looking at today, Psalm 94 and Hebrews 12, it seems that God's discipline is kind of just another name for the hardships of life. Right? If, if we'd extended that Hebrews reading longer and we'd looked at chapter 11, 
it talks about all the people down through the ages that followed God in spite of hardships. And it ends with people that were persecuted for their faith and even killed for their faith. And then from there, he moves into this discussion on the Lord's discipline. Same here in this passage in Psalm 94. It's talking about these wicked people that are doing all kinds of evil things in society. And then he moves to just talking about the Lord's discipline. In other words, it seems that the Lord's discipline isn't some special thing that always comes labeled the Lord's discipline in stenciled on letters that we're going to just recognize as such as soon as we face it. I think often when we think of discipline or training, we tend to think of artificially controlled, safe environments that, that slowly build skills, right? Anybody here gone through that experience recently of teaching a teenager how to drive? Anybody maybe? Yeah, I see, I see a few that, that are nodding. What you don't do when you're teaching a young person to drive is drive them into heavy traffic on the 401 at rush hour and then switch seats and be like, there you go, take it from here. No, you don't do that. You start them on the back roads out north of town or in a parking lot so they get the hang of like how to use the pedals on them, especially if they're trying to drive a manual transmission, right? It's, you start them in safe things so they don't kill themselves or wreck your car or hurt someone else. And then gradually you move up to, okay, we're going to drive in a, in a residential neighborhood in Moose Jaw. And now we're going to drive downtown. And now we're going to drive on the ring road in Regina or Saskatoon where things get a little more difficult, right? You, you build it up gradually. We might also consider other types of training, though. Uh, Training for more intense kind of things. Many of us, most of us, will have learned to drive at some point. But there are other things you can train for that only, only a very small fraction of the population ever is actually able to do. You might think of training for military special units like uh, the U.S. Marine Corps or the Navy SEALs or similar things. Obviously, they begin with, with basic training, the same as any other military personnel. And even that can be, get pretty intense. But then when it comes to their actual special ops training, they actually start to get into training situations that will be similar or sometimes even worse than what they might encounter in real war. Because they have to be prepared for being able to march a really long distance without having had adequate sleep and when they're under tremendous stress. Because they don't know what they're going to get called upon to do other than it's going to be really, really hard. That's the thing. When the stakes are high, the training has to be even more intense. That's just how it works. And in these situations where the stakes are high, if the training doesn't hurt us some, it's probably not training or disciplining us for anything important. If there's no cost to us, then there's going to be no gain either. And that can be hard because we wonder about a lot of things. Was this, was this really necessary, Lord? Was that? This thing you made me go through, it didn't feel like it was helping me to grow at all. It felt like it was just kind of designed to break me down and that was about it rather than teach me anything. Did, did, it, did it have to be that heartbreaking? And, and Lord, like even we might say those, those Navy SEALs and whatnot, they get to enter that voluntarily and they can still go home if they really want to. This thing I'm going through, I, I've got no out on this, Lord. I didn't agree to this at all. Kind of hard to go home when you're in the midst of grieving a tragic loss or you're enduring cancer. 
Again, I don't, I don't have easy answers. What I do have is the stated purpose of it. It's t- this psalm tells us to provide us with rest or peace in some translations until God does judge the wicked. So here's the thing, and it's what I told the kids. This stuff's going to happen to us in our lives regardless of, of how good we are or how faithful we are. We live in a, in a fallen and broken world. and we, we live in a world where things fall apart, where people hurt one another, where our bodies break down and fall apart. Even our brothers and sisters in Christ, unfortunately, we're still sinners. We still sin against each other sometimes. And that's to say nothing of the actual enemies of Jesus and his gospel that are out there. So if hurts and hardships are going to come, which they are going to come, then the question is, what are we going to do with them? And as I said to the kids, it doesn't matter if it's trying to learn how to print your alphabet or play scales on the piano or suffer through something really hard in life. They, all these things still present us with the same possibilities. We can either throw the crayons down and stomp off and say, I'm done with this, or we can say, what am I supposed to learn out of this? How am I going to learn it? And then the question becomes, can we trust God sufficiently that we can still find some level of peace in him, even in the midst of trials, until God eventually will judge all things? Because we do have his promise that he will. It might take a long time. We might feel like the discipline is awfully severe and that the difficulty of it is well out of proportion to the things that we're going to gain or learn. But in verse 14, and all throughout the story of Scripture, we have God's promise that through it all, he will not forsake his people. In verse 22, a lot of English translations have, the Lord has become my rock. If you were here last week, I mentioned that Hebrew poetry in particular is not always real easy to translate. One of the reasons is, and this is getting a little bit nerdy, but I hope you can follow me, Hebrew verbs are not kind of neatly tensed out in past, present, future the way a lot of our Western languages are. Now, in narrative, usually you can figure that out. If the Bible's telling a story, okay, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, this happened, and maybe this is going to happen after that. But in poetry, where there's not that context, sometimes you're left scratching your head going, what does, what's it saying here? Is it saying, the Lord was my rock, the Lord will be my rock, the Lord... Uh, has become my rock. It's not always clear, but I, I think it's getting at something important here with has become. See, the action happened in the past. That is, for this psalmist, the Lord showed himself strong in some remarkable way. But it also seems to be the case that this has changed this psalm writer's outlook on things since whatever happened, happened. It seems that Something has happened which has changed his outlook on life. Right? Being strong and faithful, it's an attribute of God's character and, and who he is. However, in this verse, we see that what is true of God in this sort of abstract and eternal sense, at some point in this writer's past, got applied to his situation in a way that was powerful. And that happens in our lives, too. God's truth gets applied to our hearts, our minds, our situations. And when it does, we see that it's not just an abstract concept, but that it is, in fact, for us, too. 
So where do you need God to become your rock? Right? You, you know abstractly in your mind somewhere that yes, God is a rock for his people. But where are you longing to see that truth applied to your life today? Where do you need the truth and reality of God's strength and might and that he is a rock to meet your life today and your situation? These latter verses present a number of examples of situations in addition to the enemies mentioned at the start. Verse 18 talks about when my foot slips. In scripture, the image of uh, the slipping foot, it, it generally points to going back on your faith. Either giving in to doubt or temptation or despair. And maybe that's the case for some of us. We're, we're wrestling with doubt. We're, we're feeling like we don't have a handle on the temptations we keep facing in life. And we give in to them. In doing so, we're feeling I'm giving sin a foothold in my life. The promise here is that the Lord's steadfast love will hold you up, it says. That's a way the Lord will become your rock. Verse 19 talks about the cares, or maybe your translation has the anxieties of my heart are many. We all know what it's like to have an anxious heart. Our kids, our finances, our jobs, what's going on with our church and this two congregations becoming one. This relationship over here of mine, it seems fractured and strained and hurting. What about my health? It just goes on and on. And some of us feel these things very deeply. Most translations have the word many here, like when my worries or the cares of my heart are many. It might not be a stretch to say when my worries or my anxieties multiply. And that happens sometimes, right? They all, they all bunch together, don't they? It's not like this day I face one and then tomorrow I face another and tomorrow I face another. Sometimes it feels like today I face one and tomorrow I face two and the next day I face four and the next day I face eight. And at some point it just seems like they've multiplied beyond control and we don't know what to do. Scripture says here that even in those situations, the Lord's comfort can still bring gladness to your soul. Not necessarily that all those other things are just going to vanish and you won't have to deal with them, but that he will bring you comfort even in the midst of it. Some of us will have known when that happens. The situations don't change, but we have this inexplicable peace. It, it may not last permanently, but it's a gift from the Lord, kind of like a little island of refuge in the midst of an otherwise very difficult an anxious situation. That's a way the Lord will become your rock. In verses 21 and, and so uh, following, he talks about, again, wicked rulers. He gets back to where he started. Wicked rulers, injustice in society. That's a hard one. It's hard because we see these things going on in our world and we want God to fix it now. But his timing seems to be more along the lines of then. That's hard. At the same time, this passage reminds us that while God may allow these things, and that while he may even use them, and he may even use them for our good, he's not on the same side as them, right? There's that question, can wicked rulers be allied with you? Implied answer, no, they cannot. God and these wicked rulers are not on the same side, even if he allows them, even if he permits them space, even if he still manages to use them to bring about some good, some, some growth in our faith, he's not on the same side as them. And we have his, confidence assur- his confident assurance at the end of this psalm that he will one day wipe them out. Imagine that, 
No more mass shootings. No more dictators. No more wars. No more mocking of God and his people in government, in media. As we close, I want to circle back around the idea of discipline one more time and take us back to the book of Hebrews. Chapter 12, which we heard earlier, has has a great deal to say about this topic as it's applied to us. There's another passage we need to hear, which begins at chapter 5, verse 7. It says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now that could be a whole sermon in and of itself, and it probably should as we wrap our minds around, what does it mean that Jesus was made perfect? Wasn't he perfect already? And how did he have to learn obedience if he was sinless all the time? So some of those things are hard for us to wrap our minds around. It's it's hard to understand why Jesus, the perfect son of God, would still need to undergo discipline and in what sense he needed to be made perfect. But scripture tells us this is a real thing. Jesus went through suffering that functioned as the Lord's discipline. And he learned obedience, it says. The other thing we see from this passage is being delivered happened, but again, it was awfully complicated. The text says that Jesus was heard by the one who was able to deliver him from death. And yet, we know that Jesus wasn't delivered from death, but he was delivered from death. He wasn't delivered from death initially, right? I think primarily most of us are going to be thinking of Jesus' prayer in the garden, right? The... the The cry of of Jesus' heart that if it was possible, the cup of suffering and God's judgment would be taken away from him. But it was not. Jesus still had to endure the cross. And yet it still says in this passage that God, the one who is able to deliver him from death, heard him. And yet he still had to go to the cross. And yet, he was delivered from death. Eventually, after his suffering, because the Lord raised him up from death. I know this is familiar territory, or it should be by now for those of you who have been here over the last few weeks. I feel like this sermon series on God as our rock has kind of just been the same sermon regularly from different psalms, right? But that's because this is the gospel. Was Jesus delivered from suffering and death? No, he wasn't, at least not in the short term. Was Jesus delivered from suffering and death? Yes, he was, eventually, ultimately. And in that we have both our salvation and the pattern of our own life. If scripture can say that Jesus, with with loud cries and tears even, prayed to the one who could deliver him from death, and that he was heard, and yet even so he had to suffer first before he was vindicated, before he was glorified, then that should remain the pattern of our own lives as well. We're not going to have it better than our Savior did. As I said, we have in that both our salvation and our pattern of life. And one last thought. 
the, the title of my message and one of the themes alongside the Lord's discipline that we've seen is this idea of God delivering his people. We've looked at God delivering his people at the time of the Exodus from, from slavery in Egypt. We've mentioned God bringing his people from their exile in Babylon. And we've talked about that God will ultimately deliver his people. But where that story goes, that big story of scripture, the climax of it is what we see in the work of Jesus. If we want to see where God ultimately delivered his people, that's where we look. Jesus, he died for our sins. He rose for our justification. And he's coming again for our vindication eventually. The Lord will not forsake his people. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks and praise that you will not forsake your people. You have demonstrated that over and over again uh, in your scriptures, that though it might take a long time, though it might look different than expected, you continue to redeem your people. You continue to vindicate them. And ultimately, Lord, of course, that, that story takes us to our Savior and to his cross, to the salvation that was ours because of it. And yet, of course, we know that there, there still is more to that story. We live in this, this time where, where we still wrestle with these things, where we still see injustice in our world like this psalm writer did, where there are still anxieties in our hearts, where we still struggle to live out our faith day to day in the midst of it all. But as we're reminded that the Lord did not forsake his people, as we're reminded that in Jesus we see that most clearly, Lord, we're reminded that you're not finished with this story yet and that we can look toward that great day as we've been singing about already, as we've been praying about, as we've heard from your word, that you will vindicate your people ultimately. We look forward to that great day, Lord. We look forward to the day when our Savior will return, as we sang about in robes of white, and when he will make all things new, when he will fulfill the conclusion of this psalm and wipe out all evil and vindicate his people finally and forever. We don't know when that will be, Lord, but we do look forward to it. We do cry out for it. And as we do, we say, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.